Thank you for downloading this podcast, one of a series about body arts produced by the Pitt Rivers Museum at the University of Oxford. The museum's director, Dr Mike O'Hanlon, and Professor Stanley Ulijazek from the Institute of Social and Cultural Anthropology at Oxford discussed the flexible body, something that can be shaped both physically and metaphorically, and the idea of bodily norms. I'm the museum's director, and I'm standing on the museum's lower gallery, looking down the rank of cases devoted to body arts from across the world. Each of the cases is dense with objects, all connected to the body in one way or another. I mean, they come from all corners of the world and all periods in human history. And the things on display range from frankincense eaten as a breath freshener in 19th century Egypt to breast implants from Britain, from an eye cleanser used by 19th century Chinese barbers to tickle their customers' eyeballs to bring cleansing tears to the eye, to tattooing instruments from the world over, from sweat scrapers used in ancient Greece and Rome to scrape the body after hot baths, to ear ornaments worn by Tuareg nobles. But these hundreds of artefacts and the, and, the, and the photographs which illustrate some of them aren't arranged randomly. Instead, they're grouped into categories corresponding to different functions and to different stages um, in human life in which they're used. So, um, so looking down the rank of displays, we begin on the one side with mirrors and then move through toiletries, hair, scent, cosmetics, to the various life stages, childhood, puberty, marriage, adulthood and death. And then towards the end... There are other cases on body shaping, scarification uh, and tattooing. One of the most general points to emerge from the cases overall is the extent to which, while we tend to think of the body as you know, somehow naturally given, in all cultures everywhere, um, body adornments are used to mark different stages in life and, in a sense, to create those stages in life. Bodies are extremely flexible. I mean, childhood, we know that... Uh, children grow and they develop they grow at different rates they reach different stages at different times people become themselves at different rates and anybody who's got children will know that i mean anybody who is in adolescence now will know just how they are changing as a person some people go into puberty earlier some people go into puberty later the time at which people start to represent themselves through the clothing and body adornment, through makeup, if you will, when boys need to start shaving and whether they decide to start shaving or not, all of these things are, are extremely flexible. And, uh, and I think this, uh, this display reflects that. I mean, talking about the issue of, of puberty and looking at the um, displays, we can see, for example, the special necklaces and shields traditionally worn by Kikuyu youths at initiation, examples of cane armbands, which used to be worn by girls from Bougainville in the Solomon Islands at first menstruation. I recall my friends among the Wagi people in the New Guinea Highlands saying how much taller young people now were than previously and attributing this to the tin fish and rice that they now ate. People across the world have gotten bigger in size and they, you know, grow, children grow faster. I mean, in, in Britain, people are um, a good eight centimetres. That would be a good three, four inches taller um, than they were 100 years ago. You wouldn't believe that um, 150 years ago, British girls had their first period uh, when they were 17 and a half years, and now the average age is 13 and a half years. A lot of this is, is straightforwardly down to improved diet, improved nutrition, and of course this creates problems because 
Um, what do you do with an adolescent boy that is taller than his mother and is a little bit stroppy and doesn't quite fit? These categories of where people should be at different ages and different stages are challenged by you know, the, the changing biology. So exactly at what stage should somebody be initiated? It starts to become problematic when, when, when these new, new trends start to emerge. So what do we have here in this um, display on body painting? But it, uh, the particular photograph that I'm looking at is, uh, actually shows someone having their face painted. Um, it's a New Guinea Highland girl called Woolump, and she's having her face painted um, at marriage. Uh, and you can see um, one of her um, female companions has got a twig and is um, putting... Uh, onto her nose, a rather fine line in yellow, the rest of the nose being decorated in red. Um, these are um, uh, commercial paints um, now imported from uh, Australia, um, which have replaced the traditional um, uh, colours originally used um, uh, for um, uh, face painting at marriage and at um, such other occasions uh, in New Guinea. And uh, I once sat down with a large series of, uh, of women I was interviewing about the precise meaning of face paint designs. We never really got anywhere as to what the significance of the designs were, but actually asking the question stimulated um, all kinds of talk about the sort of moral character of the women. Yes, you can look at makeup, women's makeup in the, in the present day world. There's evening makeup, there's day makeup. Um, there's all kinds of things that you can do to uh, elicit different aspects of, of your character and personality, and some of those will draw judgment from other people. The face is something that everybody presents to the world, and the face is something that, that, that people res respond to. And, of course, you know, n women know better than men in, the, in this society that, 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 that facial adornment uh, you know, carries all kinds of positive connotations, um, both uh, among men and, uh, and, uh, and among women. I mean, here, in one of the early um, bits of the display um, is clearly um, on mirrors, and we have mirrors here from all over the world made from all kinds of substance. Um, um, glass mirrors, of course, but also silvered bronze and mirrors made from stone and um, mirrors made from horn, which you actually had to put into water um, to make them work. And I suppose sort of looking at mirrors ra does raise this issue of sort of of, of body image and of, of self-image, which in many ways is of considerable concern in Britain today as well as in the rest of the world. It's a big concern for me. I've just come back from Italy and had to make a decision about whether I should shave or not. Decisions about what you wear or how you, how you decide to present yourself. Hair is an ambiguous thing because it's both an object and, and, and part of biology, and yet... Um, we, you know, learn to deal with it on a day-to-day -day basis. Reflections as well. When I, you know, we look ourselves in the, the mirror, the mirror and shaving, those two things often go together. It's the one time in the day when we might actually objectively, as males, look at ourselves. And in our faces, we see the integration of our whole lives as they've, as they've happened um, so far. And uh, when people look in the mirror... As they grow older, they don't really see themselves as they are. They see themselves as they were in their 20s. And they retain their mental image of themselves as they were in their 20s all the way through until, until their 80s and 90s. Moving smoothly from marriage to death, 
Um, I see we have here uh, a black tie, as worn by, by any of us who might be attending a funeral. I mean, I think it's one of the great glories of the Pitt Rivers Museum that the West is not put in some special category, um, but body adornments from the West, as with the um, rest of the West material culture, um, is in there with artefacts um, from all over the world. I'm looking here, too, at another um, photograph from a New Guinea woman she um, is smothered um, in mourning beads, the grey-blue mourning beads wound in endless necklaces around her neck. And I think she's wearing mourning mud on her face um, to look at it. Oh, yes, and what she's got on the, on the back of her head are heavy net bags which used to be worn, hanging down her back, which used to be worn in some parts of Papua New Guinea for mourning. Indeed, in parts of Papua New Guinea, the um, dead husband's ghost was said to reside in those net bags and for considerable periods of time after the husband died the woman um, laboured under severe restrictions wasn't allowed to go outside etc until a ritual expert would finally approach her with a stick and prod the net bag off and say to the ghost be off with you, be off with you, let her free now Death is a category that uh, Western society tries to uh, not to think about terribly much it's a, it's a category that we, we, we try to delay. We've invented a new category that isn't in these displays, which is ageing, and even the idea of what is, what is, what is healthy ageing, and indeed what represents ageing. And is it, a, is it an aspect of mind? Is it an aspect of sociality? And, and I think it uh, um, reflects badly on, on much of Western society that we let our um, elders to uh, decline in importance and to deny their wisdom and allow them a social death. OK, we moved down the exhibit a, a little bit and we're down at the uh, uh, reshaping uh, display. And, well, there's a lot of teeth up here. And a corset. Now, how do you link the two things together? First of all, reshaping teeth. People have braces. You know, my daughter had braces for a number of years. And, you know, if you've got the odd crooked teeth, that shouldn't be a bother. But actually, in British society, um, as people notice faces, people notice teeth. And people are supposed to have a nice smile. And so, so reshaping teeth is something that we kind of accept as being a, a normal thing. But actually... It isn't such a normal thing. It is actually reshaping biology. The corset down here, moving on to thinking about clothing, and the way that that confines the, the, the middle of the body um, is interesting because I'm, I'm immediately drawn to think about, about these sort of very contemporary swimsuits that, uh, that uh, swimming athletes wear. These things shape their bodies. I've heard athletes say, when I've got one of these on, I feel like Superman because everything feels like it's in the right place. It pulls things in. But in everyday life, we've got a number of, of, of shaping objects for you know, the purpose of just moving from place to place. Now, you won't know this, but I'm looking down at Mike's shoes, and he's got a very snazzy pair of trainers. They've got uh, um, thick cushion soles. They're obviously meant for running, but I doubt Mike does much running in them. Um, they're an item of sportswear that have, have, have entered everyday life. But these are things, these are aspects of clothing that you know, both you know, shape our bodies and shape the way that we move our bodies. Where, where I work in, in New Guinea, your body is thought to be shaped by the condition of moral relations with the kin you're involved with, so that if your skin looks dusty or ashy, it's thought to be that, that various sets of relations, either with fellow clansmen or with maternal kin, are awry. 
And this kind of thing may lead people to sacrifice pigs or to make a confession in an endeavour to put right the relationships of which the body is seen to be the kind of natural outcome. So there's, perhaps there's a kind of contrast between, in the West, a use of sort of explicit technical means that, you know, like the swimsuits you referred to, um, to shape one's body versus, at least in my experience in New Guinea, a kind of focus on social relations to see the body as arising from those sets of social relations uh, and not purely controlled by the self in the way that we sometimes think the body is. I think there's even a third more ambiguous category which, which, which where, where, where clothing takes us. I mean, in Italy they have the concept of the, the bella figura, which is, you know, looking good in a, in a sense, but it's also... Uh, presenting oneself socially in the correct way. And, and so there's elements of both behaving in a, a morally correct way but also presenting oneself in a very attractive way. Both of those things, this involves generosity of spirit and generosity of means and, 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 and so on. But when you come to think about, let's say, you know, why men wear suits, why women wear designer clothes. Um, we have the possibility of, 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 uh, of um, bodily deceit. We have the possibility of putting on um, something that you know, not only adorns but can also hide aspects of ourselves. I think that's quite interesting. Uh, I mean, you're returning again to a New Guinea comparison, people are always distrustful of what they hear in the form of rumours of words but the body can't lie in a world of ambiguity the one thing that people will actually turn to is the body to authenticate the true state of affairs people may say look you know you accuse me of that but I can't be guilty look at my body look at my fine son going back to the issue of flexibility of our bodies and shaping them we you know most societies have an idea of, of what is a normative body and you know what it and this can be couched in various ways i mean there's the moral body what we consider to be appropriate in terms of you know uh, an outcome of our behaviors and then there's the healthy body and sometimes the two of these things go together now in most societies, we, we have a, a set of, of constructs called growth charts that tell us how children should grow best. And this is a statistical construct, and it's based on the range of, of growth patterns that lots of individual children show. And we put a kind of uh, a moral value on these things, that children shouldn't be outside of those norms. Reshaping of bodies is something that um, is practiced worldwide and is reflected in these displays. We have everything from the massive neck rings worn by women in certain groups from Myanmar and Thailand, which give the impression of having elongated people's necks, to examples from uh, of foot binding from from China. I mean, I suppose so many people these days in Britain are, are really worried about these sort of two opposite issues obesity on the one hand and anorexia on the other. I mean, I was always struck in New Guinea at um, how interested people were and how admiring they were of fat, which for them was represented by pig fat, and at their sort of culminating right, uh, once-generational right, they would get up on platforms and in front of 
crowds of people decorated in, in plumes and pearl shells and with greased bodies. They would eat enormous quantities uh, of pig fat, which is a kind of uh, uh, an image which, when I, I present it to friends in this country, makes them, of course, wince at the notion of, of, of what it must be like to eat pound on pound upon pound of fat. Now, body shaping is, is, is nothing new. There are different preferences for body size in, in different societies, but also in you know, countries like the UK, body size preferences have changed, and sometimes it leads to great contradictions in society. On the one hand, you've got a population where obesity rates are, are um, increasing dramatically, and on the other hand, you have um, uh, high rates of, uh, of anorexia, and you have fashion models that are idealised as uh, relatively thin, often unattainable. Attainably thin, thin. Now, you could, you could reflect on um, body fatness preferences across a range of societies. I've worked in, um, in the Cook Islands, which has the second um, most obese or second fattest population on the planet. In the present day, Cook Islanders really can't be bothered to reduce their body size. There's no great demand to reduce their body size and reduce obesity rates. That is unless, you know, they migrate to Australia or New Zealand where, you know, suddenly they stay, start to take on bodily norms of, you know, of, uh, of, the, of the local country. Um, you know, in Britain, you could have gone back 150 years, 200 years, and large body size was a favoured thing. You know, there's the term, to be fat with health. We don't talk about being fat with health anymore. No, I, I was always struck working in, uh, working in the New Guinea Highlands how um, people talked about one's body as an item that they cared for. They would tend to say to me, um, when you first came here, you were terribly thin, you're bun-nutting, as they, uh, as they say. Uh, now we've looked after you. You're, you're fat. Your stomach bulges over your trousers. And th this was just a way of, uh, of expressing um, the fact that they saw themselves as having, as having cared for me while I was there, having fed me on local food. It was a, a, a request for reciprocity. We've looked after you. Um, now what are you going to give us in return? Body fatness is important, body fatness matters, but when we take the biology of the body and think about what, it, what body fatness is, it's one kind of layering. When um, you know, somebody images the body and just looks at, you know, strips off the fat, looks at the muscle and bone underneath it, most people look pretty much the same. Body fatness is part of this mutable self, part of this changing self. We can increase it, we can decrease it, we can manipulate our bodies through the ways that we, you know, the, the ways that we choose to use them. We can be overfed. We can alternatively shape our bodies like Madonna through through intense physical activity. So these are these are kinds of issues that um, you know one can think about um, when looking at these displays. You know, what are the bodily norms? Um, can we challenge our bodily norms? Um, how does you know, bodily um, shaping and adornment uh, you know affect our understandings of of those norms? And then within those norms, where do we individually? See